This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hi there, Dr. Jen Lincoln here. I can't come to the phone right now, but we'll likely have an opening later on. Please leave me a message and I'll be at your cervix. I mean, <laughs> service in no time. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Let's Talk About Down There podcast. I'm your host, board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. In this week's episode, I'm answering a question about fibroids. What are they? Why do we get them? What can we do about them? And then I'm going to talk about yoni pearls. And if you're wondering why I'm pairing these two up, just you wait and see. Let's listen to our first question. Hi, I'm Amber. I'm 36, and I would like to learn about fibroids. I had one that got so big, it supposedly pushed my IUD right on out of my uterus. Then I had to have a surgery to remove a few. Why do fibroids come about? What are they made of? How do we get rid of them? How do they impact our periods, how we can get pregnant, and our overall health, happiness, and well-being? I got a really nasty period when I had these fibroids, I guess, at their peak size. I love the podcast, and I love this conversation. Thank you so much for having it with us. Amber, thank you so much for that awesome question. You hit like every angle I'd want to talk about fibroids, and I'm so glad that you're here and you're enjoying this conversation. And I have to say, I'm sorry you had to deal with the pain in the butt, or I guess it's actually the pain in the uterus that are fibroids. I will say there's something that really surprises me about fibroids. And it's this, that despite them being very common, I find that not as many women and people with a uterus that I would think know about them actually do. And it's not because something is wrong with you or you're not smart. It's just another example of how we aren't taught about our bodies. So I love that we're talking about it today. So let's gear up for a fibroid boot camp. By the end of this boot camp, you will be the fibroid expert in your friend group, which is awesome because it means you get to be the one who can answer their questions when they say, So my doc said I have these things called fibroids and I'm totally freaked out and I stopped listening when she said that that's what it is and I'm just going to go Google it because sometimes Google is good and sometimes it's very, very bad and you can be their fibroid doula helping them understand exactly what they are. So I'm just going to give you the info because that's what you want and that's what you deserve and I'm going to start with the very basics. I've always described fibroids as these little balls of muscle that grow in the uterus and they're fibrous-like like a muscle. So get it? Fibrous fibroids. That's the name we generally call them, but they're officially called lyomyomas, or sometimes we'll just say myomas. We have a million things for everything in gynecology, but fibroids is the general term we use. So that's what I'll use today. And it's really important to know that they are not cancerous. They are benign because anytime somebody hears you've got this growth in your uterus, sometimes the word tumor is used automatically our brains go to cancer. And that's not the situation here. They can be tiny, like the size of a pea, or they can be really, really big, like way bigger than the actual size of your uterus. I've had some patients where their fibroids were so big, they looked pregnant. And speaking of pregnancy, the size of your fibroid can change over time. For example, sometimes they grow when you're pregnant in relation and response to the changing hormones in your body. And sometimes they shrink the closer you get to menopause, kind of for the same reason those hormone levels are going down. And so The hormones that support the growth of the fibroid aren't there, and so they may shrink as well. We don't know why they develop. 
is it possible that they were there when we're born and they only grow bigger in size to where they're noticeable later? Now, I say we don't really know why, but there are some things that are associated with increased risks of having fibroids, and here they are. For example, being premenopausal, for those reasons that I talked about, that fibroids are really dependent on estrogen and progesterone to grow. So the more you have that in your body, the more likely they are to be there before you go through menopause. Also, these things run in families. So it's like another thing you can blame your mom or your grandmom on. We also see them more commonly in people who have hypertension or obesity. And to be honest, I'm not sure why that's the case, but studies have shown that. You can also see them in people who've had a baby before and it's been a while since they've had their last baby. Again, I have no idea why that is. Here are some scenarios where it's less likely that you'll have fibroids. So you've had more babies. Again, I have no idea why. Or you're using birth control pills or Depo. And my guess is that's related to the constant level of low levels of estrogen hormones in your body. You're not going through ovulatory cycles, which could potentially result in higher levels of estrogen and progesterone, which could potentially cause the growth of the fibroid. Fibroids can cause big problems in two ways. The first one, they take up space. And the second one, they make you bleed. And I'll get into the exact issues they can cause in just a little bit. But I want to go back and really reiterate that they are super common. Up to 70% of people, 7-0, up to 70% of people with a uterus will have them by the time they go through menopause. But that number actually may be a lot higher because many of us may have them, but they never cause problems. And so we don't know. We've never been diagnosed. For example, we don't have an ultrasound or an MRI that says, oh yeah, you've got fibroids and now you're officially diagnosed. So we're not quite sure. We're most commonly diagnosed with them in our 30s and 40s. And here's an interesting thing that I want you to know. Fibroids are two to three times more common in Black women. So it's actually closer to 90% of Black women who have them. We don't quite know why, but that's also something I'm going to get to later in our classes and session. And just to hit home how common they are, fibroids are the number one type of solid growth that are found in women and people with the uterus. And they're the number one reason that somebody gets a hysterectomy. And I have to say, kind of reading over this and doing some research for this topic, I kind of always knew that in the back of my mind, but I just think it's so interesting that even in this day and age, when we have so many treatments for things that are minimally invasive that don't require a hysterectomy, I still find it very interesting that that's the number one reason people are having a hysterectomy. And I thought it was just cool to see that, yeah, it's the number one kind of solid tumor. Remember, tumors don't always mean cancer that we find in women. So fun dinner party, food for thought. So like I said, fibroids are these little balls of muscle that are found in the uterus, but we categorize them even further based on exactly where they are in that uterus. So for example, when they're entirely inside of the cavity of the uterus, so that's where if you get pregnant, that's where an embryo implants and a fetus develops, then they'd be called intracavitary fibroids. They can also hang right off the outside of the uterus, or they can be completely within the wall of the uterus, or they might even be partially down into your cervix. So we have lots of different names to describe fibroids based on their location, such as subserosal, submucosal, intramural, etc. So these are all the different ways that we describe where your fibroids might be. Okay, let's talk about the meat and potatoes of this, which is what do these fibroids do? What are the symptoms that they cause? And the good news is that while 70% or more of us have fibroids, they only cause symptoms or problems in about 25% of people who have them. I think it depends if you're a glass is half empty or half full kind of person. Does 25% sound like a lot or is that kind of cool that, you know, the majority of us have no issues? I don't know. I probably have a different opinion depending on what day it is. But here's what they do. 
Fibroids can cause heavy periods or long periods or bleeding in between periods. So that's that bleeding part that I was talking about. Fibroids can also cause issues based on how much space they take up. So imagine you've got a regular size uterus, but you've got two fibroids that are each the size of a softball in your belly. Yeah, that's going to cause some problems. So symptoms that we say are related to bulk symptoms of fibroids include bloating, or maybe having to pee a lot if they push down on your bladder and your bladder can't expand to its normal size and hold as much pee. They can also cause constipation if they're pushing down on your intestines. They can make sex hurt because of where they're located in the pelvis. And yes, they can cause pelvic pain and abdominal pain outside of sex. Unfortunately, they can also cause issues with pregnancy. If they're located in that cavity of the uterus, they can cause something like recurrent pregnancy loss or miscarriage or preterm labor if they're getting in the way of a fetus growing. They can also cause infertility if they're physically blocking the path for a sperm and an egg to meet. So while fibroids often don't cause any issues, they can certainly cause problems, and they're definitely a reason that many people might need medical or surgical therapy. So let's talk about how fibroids are diagnosed. So if you've got some of these symptoms or you or your doctor think fibroids might be at play, The good news is that diagnosis is actually pretty straightforward, which for once, I feel like in the field of gynecology, we love that. It's usually a combination of imaging. So actually looking and saying, hey, look at that fibroid in your uterus. We often can do this very easily with an ultrasound or an MRI, or we look directly at the uterus itself, either by doing something like laparoscopic surgery, where we make tiny incisions on the belly and put in instruments, one of which is a tiny camera, and we can see the uterus, Or we might go into the uterus if we think that there's a fibroid inside that cavity of the uterus. So we go through the opening of the cervix with a camera. We can instill some fluid, which sort of distends or opens up the uterus. And then we can see a little fibroid floating around in there. And we can do that with a camera. Or we can also do that same thing where we put that fluid in through the opening of the cervix and then take an x-ray. And we can see the same sort of thing or do an ultrasound and do the same kind of thing and be able to get a picture of what's going on in the cavity of the uterus. So how are fibroids treated if you're diagnosed with one? Here's the answer I feel like I'm always saying, which is no one size fits all. It really depends on what is bothering you and what you want. And it may also involve like how close you are to menopause. Do you think that you can make it another year or two before your uterus and fibroids may shrink down if you're going through the menopausal transition? Do you want to keep your uterus to have kids in the future? So lots of different things need to be taken into account once you have a diagnosis of fibroids to see what might be the right treatment for you. Okay, let's talk about options. The first option is to do nothing. If you happen to have an ultrasound for some reason, maybe it's even at the time of pregnancy and they happen to see a couple little fibroids or maybe even one larger one in your uterus. If it's not causing you any issues, then you don't really have to do anything. You also may choose to do nothing if you're really close to menopause, like I mentioned before, and you think that you can kind of eek by until then. So that's one option. You can always opt to do nothing and then eventually change your mind because your symptoms change or things have gotten worse or it's just not working for you. Let's talk about treatments based on what the problem is. So let's first talk about issues with bleeding. So remember, I said fibroids can cause heavy periods, painful periods, long periods, bleeding in between periods, and it really depends on the size and the location. If it involves that lining of the uterus, which every month builds up and sloughs off and and is what your period is. So kind of depends, but let's just talk about treating annoying, heavy, bothersome bleeding. 
So the first category of treatments are called GnRH antagonists. So these are a category of medications that are like hormone communicators. So they affect the pituitary gland and tell the pituitary gland to chill out and stop releasing hormones that then tell the ovaries to make estrogen and progesterone. So when you take these medications, your own body's production of estrogen and progesterone drop down. So we use these medications and at the same time also give you a little bit of estrogen and progesterone so that we get the benefit of not having too much. So your fibroids shrink down and chill out a bit, but you don't have such low levels that you have symptoms related to menopause like hot flushes and issues with your bones becoming too brittle, vaginal dryness, that kind of thing. These work really well for bleeding, but the side effects like hot flushes can happen. And these are only approved to be used for up to two years. So these are very much a short-term therapy. And the reason is that if we use them too long and your hormone levels are too low for too long, it could eventually cause issues with things like bone density leading to osteoporosis. Another treatment that is commonly used for bleeding as related to fibroids are the progesterone IUD. So these are IUDs that have progesterone in it, including the Mirena, Liletta, the Kylena, and the Skyla, but the ones that have been studied most are the Mirena IUD. These work really well for bleeding in terms of dropping down the amount of bleeding somebody has related to fibroids, but they have a higher risk of coming out or expulsion. And that's exactly what Amber said happened to her. So Normally, when you have an IUD placed, the risk that it comes out is less than 5%. But in people with fibroids, that risk is double. It's about 11%. So a lot of it depends on how big the fibroid is and where exactly it's located. But if you're able to have an IUD placed and have it kept in place, it could be a really good treatment for fibroid-related heavy bleeding. Birth control pills also work really well for fibroid-related bleeding, but when we look at studies, the IUDs do tend to be better. However, if your uterus rejects the IUD and says, no, thank you, a pill could be a nice second option for you. And lastly, TXA, or tranexamic acid, is a medication that stabilizes the lining of your uterus. It prevents these little clots from breaking down and bleeding, so we do see less bleeding. So these are different medications either in a pill form or an IUD form that can be used to decrease the amount of bleeding related to fibroids. Now, some people don't just have issues with bleeding. Some people also have issues with those bulk symptoms that I talked about. So when the fibroids are getting really big and bothersome and they're causing issues like pain with sex or constipation, there's another medication that could be used to help with both of these. These are called GNRH agonists. So not an antagonist, but an agonist. And you may have heard a drug like Lupron, which is a a GnRH agonist that sometimes we use for this. Works a little bit differently, but the same kind of idea is that it eventually shrinks down the uterus and the fibroids. This is a short-term treatment. It's only really supposed to be used for up to six to 12 months. And most commonly, gynecologists will use this as a way to shrink down the uterus a bit before surgery, so that way the surgery is easier. Or maybe it's a surgery that the uterus is a bit too big to be able to do a laparoscopic surgery, but by giving this medication ahead of time, they can shrink it down enough to, now you can have a laparoscopic surgery and you don't have need a big abdominal incision. Okay, we've talked about medications so far. Let's talk about procedures and surgeries, because for a lot of people with bothersome fibroids, this is eventually something that they do need. So the first one I want to talk about is uterine artery embolization, or a UAE. And this is something done by an interventional radiologist, so not your gynecologist. And what they do is they basically thread a little catheter in, usually through um, your femoral vessels in your leg. And what they do is they thread it up to the blood vessels that feed the uterus. These are called your uterine arteries. And they inject a little substance in there that decreases the ability for blood to flow through that. 
So what happens when you decrease your blood flow to the uterus? You decrease your blood flow to the fibroids and they can't grow as big. So they often shrink back down to size. Now, while this is a minimally invasive procedure, it's not like you're going in and having a major surgery and it can work for some people. One of the most common things that happens is the need for another procedure in the future. So recent data has shown that about 15 to 38% of people who have this UAE done need another procedure in the coming two to five years. So maybe they need a repeat procedure or a myomectomy where the fibroids are moved, or maybe they have their uterus removed entirely. It's important to note that if you have this procedure done, there are also some other risks associated. One of them is decreased ovarian function. So sometimes some of that blockage of the uterine artery can also affect blood flow to the ovaries. And if the ovaries aren't getting enough blood flow, you're not gonna be able to work as well and you may go through early menopause. There's also some risks with future fertility. So we've seen increased rates of preterm labor, miscarriage, that kind of thing. So in general, this is not something that's recommended for people who want to have more kids in the future. Another procedure is called radiofrequency ablation. And you might see this at your doctor's office or advertised what's called the excessa procedure. And this is a laparoscopic surgery. So you're completely asleep, you're under anesthesia, and your OBGYN puts little incisions on your belly, puts in that little camera that I talked about, and then actually puts in this little target radiofrequency ablation that uses heat to target the fibroids and use heat to shrink them down. Full disclosure, I've never done one of these before in my training, but it sounds really cool. And what's awesome about it is that it's a minimally invasive surgery, meaning you're going home the same day you're having the procedure. If that's something you might be interested in, you can talk with your provider to see if that's something they recommend or they perform. And if not, they could potentially refer you to somebody else who could. Another procedure is called an endometrial ablation. So this is a procedure where we put a little device in through the opening of the cervix and using radio frequency or heat, we basically cook that lining of the uterus. I know it doesn't sound very exciting, but basically it makes it all inactive. Now, we often will do this procedure for other types of bleeding. There's not a ton of data if your bleeding is related specifically to fibroids. So something that you may hear about, but in general, it's not a big treatment for fibroids specifically. I'll finish up with our last two surgical treatments, and these are ones that people tend to have heard of before. The first is called a myomectomy. Remember, myo for myoma or fibroid, and ectomy means the removal of. So this is the removal of a fibroid or fibroids. This is a surgery that can be done either abdominally, so making a big incision on the belly, or a laparoscopic, tiny incisions on the belly, and kind of carving out those fibroids and leaving the rest of the uterus intact. Or if you've got fibroids in the cavity of your uterus going in through the opening of the cervix, kind of distending the uterus with fluid so we can see and then resecting or removing, shaving off, grabbing the fibroids that we can see. This was always a really fun surgery for me to perform when I was doing gynecologic surgery. Um, it's just very satisfying to be able to shell out a fibroid. Now, it's important to know that fibroids sometimes can reoccur. And with certain types of myomectomies, it's not recommended that you labor in the future and that you would need to have a C-section in the future. And if you've got questions about C-sections, know that I just did a podcast episode all about C-sections and what they're like, so you can check that out. I'll have that link in my show notes too. Lastly, hysterectomy. This is where we remove the uterus. And I'm going to talk a bit more about that later on here, but this is really the definitive treatment for fibroids, right? If you don't have a uterus, you cannot get fibroids in your uterus. The benefit of that is that you know they're gone for good. The downside is that it's a bigger surgery. And yes, it's true. We can do 
vaginal hysterectomies or laparoscopic hysterectomies where you're still going home the same day. But it's still a longer surgery, a bigger procedure than some of the other ones I recommended. And obviously, if you're wanting to have kids in the future, this isn't a great idea as you would not be able to get pregnant in the future. Though, of course, if you still have your ovaries, you could certainly use a gestational carrier or a surrogate in the future. So lots to consider, right? Oh, and hey, guess what time it is? It's time for this week's Classes in Session, where we head up this week's Teachable Moment. Welcome to the health class you wish you had in high school. Everybody, take your seats. This week's topic is about racism. And you might be wondering why I'm going there when talking about fibroids. Like, how are the two related? Actually, quite a bit. And this is a really perfect example of how racism can affect healthcare. Unfortunately, study after study shows us that Black women in the United States don't get the same level of care when it comes to managing fibroids. So let me show you exactly what I mean. Let's just talk about fibroids in Black women and people with a uterus. This category of people have a higher rate of fibroids, like I talked about, remember, up to 90%. And not only that, but an earlier age of onset, more severe symptoms, and when they have surgery or we count the number of fibroids, they have more per person they actually end up with higher rates of hysterectomy. It takes longer to actually get a diagnosis, so there's a much longer delay in getting a diagnosis. And once they are diagnosed, they have worse outcomes in terms of being able to get the treatment that they needed. So they have more difficulty with that. Now, why is that? Before we say, well, Dr. Joan, obviously it's a lot of different things. Well, yeah, it is, but let's just also call it what it is. It's racism, which leads to a lack of access to care, being dismissed in the doctor's office, And if you don't think that's true, go ahead and look up how pain is treated, compare black people to white people. And there's some really great studies out there that show that black people, when they present to the emergency room, they wait longer. And when they eventually do get treated, they get less medication for their pain. And there's a lot of reasons why this happens. And a lot of it is absolutely false beliefs that crazy ideas like black people have a higher pain tolerance and shouldn't get as many medications. I mean, lots of ridiculous things that are absolutely untrue. We also know that Black people in this country are more likely to struggle with insurance, so that can affect the treatment that they get. So for example, many insurances will cover hysterectomy or fibroids. A lot fewer will cover these what we call fancy newer treatments for fibroids that you may say, oh, you know what, you are a great candidate for this ablation or this radiofrequency ablation treatment, but I can't offer it to you because your insurance won't cover it. So just go get the hysterectomy. Or, you know, I'm not even going to try because I bet your insurance won't cover it. We see this. We also can see the biases that happen in medicine. So I told you that Black women are more likely to have fibroids. So maybe as a part of your training, you internalize that as, well, that's just a disease that Black women get. Like, that's just how it is. Like, just deal with it. And I'm not saying that's correct, but I can tell you that's a lot of unconscious bias that people carry around, which is really institutionalized racism. There are other reasons that Black women who are diagnosed with fibroids may not get the care they need. It may be harder for them to get time off from work, to go to the appointments, to get the ultrasounds, to have the surgery, to take the time off from work afterwards, to afford the childcare. Why? Because there's a lot of disparities when it comes to job opportunities, salaries. I mean, it really affects everything. And here's another fact to blow your mind. Black women are way more underrepresented in clinical trials and research. So here I am telling you about a disorder that we know is more common in a specific racial and ethnic group of people, and they're not even being included 
in a lot of the trials to look at these things like that makes no sense, right? So I would hope if this is the first time you're hearing this, know that now that you know, and we know better, we do better and understand that we can't explain away why certain things happen in some people because of the color of their skin. There's really no biological basis for that. And fibroids is a great example of a disease that happens in different people, that is treated in different ways. And the only way we can really square it is racism. So what are we gonna do today to change that? I encourage you to sit with that, think about that. And I think that knowledge and awareness is power. So go ahead and share this with your friends and keep your eyes out the next time you hear about how certain diseases or diagnoses are related in the news or, or how much attention they get. With that, class dismissed. Okay, so I've covered a lot about fibroids so far, and I'm going to bring up this next question, and I want you to stick with me to see how the two are linked. Hi, my name is Isabella, and I'm a Spawner student that's studying to um, go into the gynecology field, so I really love your podcast. This question is just about, like, like I was wondering if you could cover in your clitorally segment, but I've seen these crazy things called yoni pearls, which are just ridiculous. Like, these girls are selling these, like, like I don't know, little pearls that you just put up as a suppository, and then they show the after, which is all this gunk on it. And I just wanted to, like, see what you thought about it, because I just thought it was crazy. Thank you so much. Love your podcast. Okay, Isabella, I love that you're listening and that you specifically knew should be in the clitorally segment. So I'm going to talk about, answer this question, and then, yeah, of course, we're going to do a clitorally segment on it. So what exactly are yoni pearls? And if you have not heard me talk about this on my other socials, be thankful, because this is one where we can just talk about it and you can't see them, because not a whole lot of stuff grosses me out, but like, don't go Googling what happens when you put in a yoni pearl, because, well, probably you're doing it right now, and I told you so. So yoni pearls are these little things. They're not pearls at all, but they're these little circular shaped little cachet of herbal ingredients, if you will. And they're sold for a lot of different reasons with the idea that you place them into the vagina and you leave them in there for like a couple of days. And when you take it out, they come out with all this gunk on them. And people claim that it detoxes your yoni or your vagina. Now, really what's coming out is a bunch of dead inflammatory cells, mucus. It's basically your vagina screaming and saying, oh my God, get this junk out of me. Here are the claims that we see on these websites where people sell yoni pearls. There are claims that they detox the uterus. They cleanse the vagina. They decrease vaginal inflammation. They promote a healthier reproductive system. They help with endometriosis, irregular periods, fibroids, haha, told you, PCOS, blocked tubes, ovarian cysts, they have a quote-unquote pulling effect that draw toxins, bad bacteria, dead cells, old blood clots, mucus, and more from your yoni. And here's where it gets even better. While at the same time tightening your yoni and deterring vaginal dryness and other ailments. So they're totally, here we go, shame marketing, saying let's tighten up your vagina and then you'll be better and you'll also be nice and wet and you won't have all that gross stuff in there. And like somehow magically it's going to fix your PCOS. Like I don't even get it. Here's one website that made me want to like jump out of my chair where it said health benefits of yoni pearls. Number one, helps with yeast infections. No, they don't. Number two, effective against bacterial infections. No, it isn't. Number three, for infertility. Oh my goodness. So we're taking people who are already in a very vulnerable state, who want to get pregnant, who can't. It's already a hard enough thing to get access to good fertility care in the United States. Like that's not covered by most insurances. And you're claiming your product is going to fix that? 
where like time is literally of the essence with fertility treatment. Like, oh my God, we're not even in the clitorally segment yet. But clitorally, are you literally kidding me? Number four, they claim they're going to shrink fibroids. Really? How? We'll get back to that. Number five, manages heavy periods. Number six, gets rid of vaginal odor. Number seven, helps with endometriosis. Number eight, reduces vaginal dryness. Number nine, helps with pelvic inflammatory disease. Okay. You know, pelvic inflammatory disease is most commonly caused by gonorrhea and chlamydia. So you're saying that this is going to fix gonorrhea and chlamydia? No, it's not. Oh, it's also number 10 going to help with urinary incontinence. So yeah, okay. You have an issue with your bladder. You stick this thing in magically. It's okay. Nah, I'll just keep peeing myself. Oh my goodness. And number 11 stops itching. Mm-mm. It's going to cause itching, my friends. Okay. So just to go back to like, Jen, I can't get it. What about fibroids? Like you said, that's one thing. They claimed everything, but really... When I typed in Yoni Pearls, when I put it into my Google search bar, it automatically filled in for fibroids. That bothers me so much because it means so many people are looking this up and people who are desperate for help are being served this junk content. Okay. And so this one website that sells Yoni Pearls, which I'm not going to tell you because they're terrible and I don't want you going there. They have a recommended usage table. So they say how long you're supposed to leave these in based on your diagnosis. So for example... They say that a fibroid is an eight-day cleansing. So in total, that's 24 days because they want you to leave these in for three days and do it eight times over. No, there is no data to support that using yoni pearls are going to shrink your fibroid. What it is going to do is it's going to delay your access to care. Oh, and for gonorrhea, five cleanses. Friends, the only thing that cures gonorrhea is antibiotics. Now I get sometimes you want to be all natural and we don't want to think about using big pharma drugs, but I'm sorry if you try to use something like a yoni pearl to cure your gonorrhea, you're still going to have gonorrhea. And the next person you have sex with is going to have gonorrhea too. So like, please don't do this. And I just think what really bothers me is this website, vaginal tightening is two cleanses. Oh, for a hysterectomy, it's a six-day cleanse. I don't understand that. So now you're telling somebody who's had a surgery to put this into their vagina, which as a surgeon, I can tell you, I don't want anything in your vagina if you've just had surgery that involves your vagina. Like, I just can't. Oh, and lastly, one other company said it wasn't for virgins. Oh, I'm sorry. Why is that? Do you think that now using this product somehow makes you not a virgin? Which there are so many things that we can slice and dice, but all of them make me absolutely so angry and so horrified. And this is all basically a clitorally segment, but we're going to go all the way and we're going to go to the official clitorally segment where I am busting common myths and misconceptions and saying clitorally and literally, are you kidding me? Let's have a listen to this TikTok of someone who is singing the praises of Yoni Pearls. Yes, she is so right. So if you suffer with urinary tract infections, yeast infections, anything as far as your lady area of, you know, menstrual cycle cramps before your period or after your period, sorry, um, the Yanni Pearl is the perfect detox for you to take before and after your menstrual cycle. And if you're having trouble, such as urinary tract infections, especially if they're coming more than once and the yeast infections more than once, this is definitely something that you might want to look into. Okay, so I know that she's really into the Yoni Pearls and says that they basically help any sort of lady problem like urinary tract infections and yeast infections, but I would love us to pause for a moment, rewind, and think that maybe it's us putting these things in our vagina that's causing these issues. And no, 
they're just not going to fix these things. It just doesn't work that way. And I promise you, if there was data to show otherwise, I would let you know. So literally, literally, do not spend your money. And here's a fun little fact. The sale of these products have been banned in Canada. And yet here we are in the United States, still being served this junk content. Literally, literally, no yoni pearls in your yoni, okay? All right, in summary, fibroids are very common. Most causing no issues, but if they do, we do have lots of treatments ranging from medications to surgical procedures. There are huge racial disparities in terms of who gets fibroids and how they're treated. Diagnosis isn't that hard if you have access to care, and that's a big if. And I don't want you using yoni pearls for so many reasons, but for sure they don't treat fibroids and they can actually cause a lot of other problems. So to Amber and Isabella, thank you so much for your amazing questions and your support and giving us the chance to learn, laugh. We cringed a little bit, but it's all good. So thank you. I hope these answered all your questions about fibroids. And if I haven't, you know how to get in touch with me. Okay, it's that time where I ask you to rate, review, and follow on your favorite podcast app because we know that's how we get more people talking. So call in at 503-893-2016 and join me online at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. So let's keep the conversation going, my friends. Call in, leave a question, and know that it's okay to have questions about your body, and we're going to answer them. 